before we take a, a break from the catechism for a, for a time, looking at question and answer 115, you can find that on page 893 in the back of your hymnals. Why does God want the law preached so clearly? Well, we know, when we know that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, we come to the table not in our own righteousness, but through the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, credited to our account. So why is the treatment of the law so important? Why is it so extended in the Heidelberg Catechism? Well, to answer that question, we look at the setting in which the law is given. We're reminded of how God, in His holiness, came down upon Mount Sinai and revealed His holiness to His people in thunder and a cloud hanging over the mountain. We're reminded of His perfections and His holiness. And we see how God's people were made aware that they could not approach God in their own acts, and their own keeping of the law. The end of chapter 19, or rather, excuse me, verses 10 to 12 in chapter 19, Exodus 19, says this, The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on that day, the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. The camp trembled. The people trembled. Verse 16, on the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. The Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God's glory accompanies the giving of the law. The people are terrified. Then we see that account of the law that we know so well in Ephesians, or excuse me, in Exodus 20. And then we pick up the reading there in Exodus 20, verses 18 to 21. And when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Then coming back to the catechism, we heard this last Sunday evening, but I want to look at it again, question and answer 115. Since no one in this life can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly... Why does God want them preached so pointedly? First, so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Second, so that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image. Till after this life, we reach our goal, perfection. The people of God, the law sets before us the righteousness of God and searches our hearts. The word of God searches to the inmost parts of our being. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart as we read in Hebrews chapter 4. And the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, as they come to the end of the section on the Ten Commandments, have this question, since no one can obey the Ten Commandments or the commandments perfectly, why does God want them preached so pointedly? And first we see that preaching the law drives us to Christ. The answer is so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins 
and righteousness in Christ that we might be driven to Him. As we're reminded of it here in the sacrament this evening, Christ fulfilling the law perfectly, laying down His life as a substitute for us, perfect in every way in outward purity as well as inward purity without sin. God wants His law preached pointedly so we are compelled to believe the Gospel. The good news that though we are undeserving of life, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who believe in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. The law reveals the sinfulness of our hearts as we've seen, as we saw last week, looking at that idea of not coveting. It exposes our hearts. It doesn't lay before us another way to be saved. There's a wonderful book that speaks of the Christian life. Oh, I may have some qualms with a point here or there, but the book is Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. One of my favorite versions is the one put out by Crossway. The English is a bit easier to understand, and the artwork in it is very... uh, uh, It draws you in. I would encourage you, if you've not read it, and you are interested to get a copy, you can't have mine. But I would encourage you to get a copy of The Pilgrim's Progress. In that account of Pilgrim, or Christian, as he is known, he's on a spiritual journey to Celestial City, a picture of heaven. And as he makes his way through life, he's weighed down by that burden of sin that is on his back. And he is looking, longing, yearning to find his way to Celestial City. Evangelist tells him that it is through the narrow gate, through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one pictured there. And as he walks along, he meets another individual called Worldly Wise Man, who says, you don't need to go that way. Who told you that? And he said, evangelist spoke to me. He said, oh, he says that to everyone. But don't listen. Take another path. Go a different way. Go to the city of morality. There you'll find Mr. Legality, Mr. Law. And you'll find that there you can settle down, do your best, and exist happily in that city. Well, as he goes, he says, take that route there. Beyond that mountain, go around that mountain to find your way to the city of morality. As he does, he comes to the base of the mountain and he sees this this foreboding mountain and he sees lightning and thunder. He hears rumblings and he's concerned that it will crush him. He is fearful. Well, that is a picture of Mount Sinai. The Law in all of its fierce power, the flashes of light, of fire and lightning. Bunyan wants to write that far from removing Christian's burden, the heaviness of the law terrified him. He saw that he could not keep it, that it was not the way. And that is what the Bible tells us. The law does not have power to save. In fact, it threatens with judgment. It, its depth shows us our need of a Savior. Again, the catechism says, why preach the law so pointedly so that all our life long we may more and more come to know our sinful nature and thus more eagerly seek the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Charles Spurgeon writes on the scene here in Exodus 20, on the scene before Mount Sinai, Quote, the terrible grandeur is intended to suggest to the people the condemning force of the law, not with sweet sound of harp, nor with a song of angels was the law given, but with an awful voice from amid a terrible burning, unquote. God has this recorded for us, for he wants us to properly understand the law and how it was given. The gap between us and him, and we cannot come on our own in our righteousness, in our law-keeping. Today the law is ignored or it's downplayed such that we're told, well, just, just do your best. Just, just try your hardest. 
if indeed there's any concern for obedience at all. And there are those who say the preacher is very good. He teaches us all kinds of ways to, to do better. It's moralistic preaching. He calls us to, to continue to try harder and do better. That's all the Lord asks. The message in such places is this. All God requires is a decent effort. And those who have an ear for such preaching soon find that they have no taste for the cross. No interest in the Lord Jesus Christ because he's not necessary. He's not needful. The mountain is more of a bump in the road that they simply cross over. But here in Exodus 20, we see the scene. We see the fear of the people as they are confronted with the Holy God as He condescends to come to that mountain and to speak to them. They are afraid. The Tenth Commandment clearly goes deeper than external law-keeping. It speaks to the heart. calls us to have no desire other than for the Lord. And there we are convicted. And indeed, we have many desires that are not in keeping with God's law. He wants heart allegiance. He wants our whole being to worship Him. The right understanding of the law crushes any notion of good enough to be saved. So the law is preached to convict of sin and to drive us to Christ. The law is preached because it defined so that we might know how law, the law is de, the truth of God is defined and evil is set before us and the warning of penalty. Preaching the law exposes evil to its depth and warns of penalty. We see secondly this evening with the intention of restraining evil. There is an intent to restrain a warning that would restrain. Do not. There is right and there is wrong. Those who are condemned in the Bible are those who call evil good and good evil. We wouldn't think so today. It seems that those who are doing so seem rather prosperous and have no interest in the church and seem to be doing fine. No interest in God. Oh, they have their struggles, but we say, so do we. But the Lord warns that in the end, it will not go well. For those who call evil good and good evil and live accordingly. The law warns of the disobedience or the punishment of the disobedient. The glory and the grandeur of God are on display with the law so that man might be afraid to sin. Be fearful of punishment. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and in you that you may not sin that you might turn away from sin. A small domesticated God removes all fear from the hearts of the sinner. God sets before us a great God who is concerned with holiness and will punish sin eternally for those who are not found in Jesus Christ. It is necessary for proper functioning that the world be governed by law. It's designed as God's creation to be so. God's justice will have its day. No one will escape his judgment. And that demands reflection. One of the hymns that we sing, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders, Hark the trumpet's awful sound, Louder than a thousand thunders, Shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. The summons of judgment. Another stanza. At his call, the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks, prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? The law tests the heart. It exposes, it reveals, and warns of judgment. It searches us to expose what it is we truly desire. When God came to Cain, you remember in our study in the book of Genesis, He warned him of the desire that was in him that 
Desire can kill. Sin desires to have you, but you must not turn to it. It is crouching and scheming. Do not be enslaved to it. If desire is not subjected to God, it will lead to death and destruction, James 1 tells us. The law reveals transgression. It gives clear understanding of evil and good and the eternal destinies of each as those who pursue one or the other. Once we are made aware of our sin and our deserved condemnation, we must, we're driven to plead for God's mercy, to plead for an intercessor, one who will speak to us. We are fearful of judgment, and Moses is that picture of the mediator, the one who is standing between, picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is our mediator, the one who speaks to us on behalf of the Father, the one who has reconciled the Father to us, giving himself up, bearing the judgment that we deserved. In Christ, we find God, the judge, to be a father, ready to receive us. And the only proper response is love and thanksgiving. And what shows that love? It is obedience. The law directs us in the way to go. Part of the role of the mediator, as we see in Moses, is to teach. What does the mediator between God and man teach? God's word, God's law, as he does here, as he brings it to the people. Why does the Lord want the Ten Commandments so pointedly preached? So that we may never stop striving and never stop praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image until after this life we reach our goal, perfection. Is that that your goal? Is that my goal? To, To want to live for the Lord more and more as the world seems to be moving away from Him. Less and less. Or do we say, well, you know, we're, we're doing much better than those around us. As though it were a measure, again, of our obedience, a measure of how, how we've done. God doesn't measure on a scale. He calls for perfection and He desires that we grow in holiness. Living more and more for Him. When the Spirit of God enters into us, We repent of sin and turn to Christ and the Spirit of God continues in us to lead us to want to live in a way that is pleasing to God. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, John says in 1 John 3, verse 9. It will not characterize him or her. Indeed, we will strive to do God's law, not just outwardly, but from the heart, you see. That's where that 10th commandment drives us. Even the heart, the desires, God wants to renew. We are to strive, even as we pray for God's grace, for His Holy Spirit, so that we may be renewed more and more after God's image. More and more pressing on in thought as well as deed, keeping with God's Word. As God's Spirit works in us, we turn from making excuses for sin and despising God's law to seeing it at the sweetness of life, that which frees us, in which there there is no burden, in which there is release. The Old Testament prepares us for the mediator whom God would send. In Exodus, Moses is that mediator for God to the people, as verse 19 tells us. Christ then comes and sends the Spirit who gives ministers and elders to teach the Word, to point us to Christ, the one who is an everlasting mediator between God and man. The law reveals our sin and directs us to the one who is greater than Moses. What the law was powerless to do in that sin weakened it, God did by sending His Son who lived in perfect obedience to the law. He fulfilled the law in one life for all who were united to Him by faith. We're to be walking with Him each and every day in the way that we confront consternation, in the way that we deal with disappointment, in the way that we respond 
to adversity. Christ is that mediator greater than Moses, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. When the darkness of Calvary covered Jesus, he was acting as our perfect substitute. As the hymn says, he hushed the law's loud thunder and quenched Mount Sinai's flame. We do not come to a mountain burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, as it says in Hebrews 12, but we are brought back to Exodus 20 to find salvation, to find salvation in Christ, that mediator greater than Moses. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Listen to those words from Hebrews 12. When for we you have not come to what may not may be touched a blazing fire excuse me you have not come to what may be touched a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given if even a beast touches the mountain it shall be stoned indeed so terrifying was the sight that Moses said I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, which spoke of revenge or spoke of justice. Here we see Blood which speaks of mercy. God calling us to Himself in Christ. Sinners saved by grace. A covenant of grace. We do not make peace with sin. Peace has been made between us and God by faith in Jesus Christ. And we now turn from sin and seek to serve the Lord. Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way, though a Christian is not under the condemning power of the law, yet he is under its commanding power. It guides, it directs. Regardless of what the world says is legal or illegal or what is right or what is wrong, the Word of God directs and the Spirit empowers that we might live for Him. Kelvin has a beautiful section in the Institutes about our imperfection in this life, but our continued striving. He says this, no one has sufficient strength in himself to press on in godly living. We all move at a feeble rate. Yet in the Spirit of God, let each one of us proceed according to the measure of his puny capacity and set out on the journey we have begun. No one in the power of the Spirit shall set out so unsuccessfully as not daily to make some headway though it may be slight. Let us not cease to act as to make some progress in the way of the Lord. Let us not despair at the slightness of our success, for even though attainment may not correspond to desire, when today outstrips yesterday, the effort is not lost. Only let us look toward our mark with sincere simplicity and aspire to our goal not fondly flattering ourselves nor excusing our own evil deeds, but with continuous efforts striving toward this end that we may surpass ourselves in goodness until we attain goodness itself in glory. Sounds Pauline, doesn't it? Striving, pressing on in the power of the Spirit, the law set before us as that which we delight in, serving the Lord. This 10th commandment shows us what our desire ought to be. This setting sets before us a God who sees and knows, who has offered a mediator greater than Moses that we might draw near to Him. In Christ, God frees us to worship Him with reverence and with awe, to learn of Him and take His name in earnest as we have been justified by faith not by works, and are now free to rest in His grace. We've come to know God as Father in Christ and we're free to give honor where honor is due. We come to the table to bring honor and glory to the host whose work has opened the way for us 
to come. We come in joy. We come with confidence. For God has given His only begotten Son that those who believe in Him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Come, feast, remember and believe that God has given a complete sacrifice sufficient to cover all your sins. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, as the law is set before us, it is convicting. It even judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. We know, O Lord, our desires are not what they ought to be. But through the work of your Holy Spirit, more and more they are becoming what they should be. That is to your honor and to your glory, to the greatness of your name, to the glory of your patience, your long-suffering, pointing to the provision for how we received your Spirit through the acceptable sacrifice of your Son who gave his life for all our sins. Lord, as we draw near, we do so humbled. We do so as those who are thankful, joyful in him. Lord, increase our faith. Strengthen our resolve. Help us to recognize what is evil and what is good. To press on in the good. To consider your ways in which there is no burden, but in which there is life and truth. Hear us even as we ask for the forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ. Amen. I wanted to sing those words that I quoted in the sermon. Number 286. Number 286. Let us love and sing and wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed us with His blood. He has brought us nigh to God. We're going to stand to sing those five stanzas. Number 286.
remain standing. By this Holy Supper, may we be strengthened in the Christian faith which we want to make confession of. Using the words of the Apostles' Creed as it's found there in your insert, we say together, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. That we may be nourished with Christ, the true heavenly bread, let us not cling to these external things, bread and wine, but with our hearts lifted to heaven, where our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, is at the right hand of the Father, where the articles of our Christian faith direct us, let us look up in faith. Let us not doubt that we shall be nourished and refreshed in our souls with his body and blood, through the working of the Holy Spirit, as truly as we receive the holy bread and drink in remembrance of him. The bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ.
Beloved, take, eat, remember and believe that the body of our Lord Jesus Christ was given unto the complete forgiveness of all our sins. The cup of blessing which we bless is a communion of the blood of Christ.
Beloved, take, drink, remember and believe that the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed for the complete forgiveness of all our sins. The Lord in his great condescension has come to help us in our need. And the response of the psalmist is fitting. Beloved in the Lord, since the Lord has now nourished our souls at his table, let us together praise his holy name with thanksgiving and let everyone say in his heart, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth... So great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. These words from Romans. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Therefore my mouth and heart shall show forth the praise of the Lord from this time forth forevermore. Amen. Let's offer up a prayer of thanksgiving. O merciful God and Father, you who have come down, taking on flesh in your Son, we thank you with all our heart that of your boundless mercy you have given us your only begotten Son for a mediator, the sacrifice for our sins and as our food and drink unto life eternal. We also thank you that you give us a true faith whereby we become partakers of these benefits. You've united us to Christ and to each other in the communion of saints. You've given your Son for us and to us and have proclaimed his saving death to the whole world. Having signified and sealed the atoning sacrifice of your Son for us, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, also make us witnesses to this good news among our neighbors. Strengthen us in faith to live gratefully in this present age as we await our Savior's return in glory. In his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn now in your hymnals to number 181 as we will sing a hymn of thanksgiving. Now thank we all our God. We'll stand to sing number 181.
Let's offer up a prayer as we receive the offering. Father in heaven, you who have seen our dead state have come to deliver us from poverty to riches. Riches untold to life everlasting. We give you thanks and praise and we thank you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one only God. We glory in you. We know that there are needs that we have, not just spiritually, but physically. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are generous to give to the Benevolence Fund that as those needs arise, we may provide revealing that our hearts have been changed by that gospel of grace, that we too are rich in giving as we have received richly. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Please stand as we receive God's parting blessing. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.